Welcome to the Jerusalem Lights Podcast with Rabbi Chaim Richman, whose goal is Torah for everyone. I'm your co-host, Jim Long, and now, Rabbi Chaim Richman. Shalom Aleichem, Jim. Happy Mar Cheshvan to you and all our listeners. Shalom, Rabbi, and shalom to all of our listeners. So here we are in, in um, a new cycle of Torah readings in, in Sefer Breshit, in the book of Genesis, and we are witnessing the rapid... Uh, succession of history from creation through the time of Noah and the flood. And now we are up to the emergence of Abraham, who is really the founder of the nation of Israel, the first of the forefathers. And a lot of Torah is spent on the life of Abraham, the adventures, as it were, of mm-hmm. Abraham. And, and as you mentioned last week, so, so pithily, there is this concept in Torah study, Maseh Avot Siman Lebanim, which means that that which befell the forefathers is a sign for the children. Or what it really means is, I guess it's a type of history repeating itself, meaning, not really, no, it's a template is what it is. It's that, yeah. it's that the fathers, they were so, their lives were like microcosms, so intense and so, and so concentrated with, with, um, the roots, as as it were, putting down the roots of the nation, that the things that they went through in their adventures of finding Hashem in the world and of revealing Hashem in the world to others, and in, and in their serving Hashem, and this is an important point, they laid down kind of like a dynamic which would be reverberating throughout history for their uh, for their descendants, and 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 the, this idea of the different ways of serving Hashem is so important because the forefathers actually each one of them. Served Hashem in a different way. I mean, we all hope to serve Hashem. That's our life's goal, but we're not all the same. Every person is different. Every person is different, and yet we all serve the same God, and we all have a, a, something new to add to the to the to the orchestra. We, uh, you know, we all have something to add that no one else can add. And and in this particular case of the avot of the patriarchs being considered like this sort of templates. The idea is that they represent the actual divine midot of Hashem. And don't don't get me wrong here. That doesn't you know what 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 we mean is that the way God relates to His created universe is through His attributes, and the forefathers themselves, they kind of shine a light on these attributes. They reflect them, and of course, this is the whole idea of the ushpizin. The, mm-hmm. the guests who visit us in the sukkah over Sukkot, you know, during each one of the seven days of Sukkot, so one of the seven shepherds of Israel, as it were, um, visits us in the sukkah, the spirit, as it were, of, the, of that patriarch. But it, it doesn't just mean the person himself. It means what they represent. It means the idea of, of um, on that radio dial, tuning in and focusing on this way of understanding of understanding Hashem. The only way that we can possibly understand Hashem is, is through his midot. He has no end. He is, he is all reality. But the best way to explain this is simply to dive right into the topic at hand, which is Avraham Avinu, who, who is universally understood and recognized to represent. On the basis of what we learn in these Torah portions, he represents chesed. Yeah. Avraham is, is the embodiment of the attribute 
of kindness. You know, the sages tell us that that Abraham went through 10 tests just resonates all through this Parsha. Doesn't this also show that that his descendants, the children of Israel, are sort of tested 10 times in their own lives? Yeah, you know, you're kind of giving a spoiler to my whole video this week. (laughs) No, yes, absolutely. I believe that not only are are the Jews tested every day, but I believe that Torah really teaches us that every person is tested every day. And this is one of the things that I want to talk about deeply in our in our video this week is the concept of why we are tested. Yes, every person is constantly tested. This is I used to have a teacher and in high school, he used to say best by test. That's whenever he would give us a pop quiz, he would say best mm. by test. I think that's Hashem's position as well. So we're always tested. But the, but the whole idea of what a nisayon, what a test is, is something that needs to be examined deeply. But yes, so Avraham was tested 10 times. And the the interesting thing is that, I mean, interesting, the, 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 the whole concept of the akidah, of the binding of Isaac, it just simply boggles the mind. I mean, there's so much about it that is so totally incomprehensible to us, you know, on so many levels, but, but on a very basic level, you know, the first thing that kind of jumps out at us is that this test of him, Avraham, being asked to slaughter the son of his old age that he was waiting for his whole life that he was praying for that Hashem also promised would be the continuation of his line. That was like, so the opposite of his midah of chesed. Mm-hmm. In other words, you what, what you can already tell from that, if Avraham himself is a template is that a person is tested specifically in, in his own area. In other words, his, his whole thing is like, acts of kindness. And here he's basically being asked to do something which goes against his very nature. So now if sure. Hashem is asking you to do something which is easy for you, that's not a test, right? Yeah. We don't find this out from the Torah, but we find out from these, these other sources that when Isaac was born, that Terak was alive to see his grandson born. How old was Isaac at the time of the binding? The conventional conception that people have in their minds is it's a little boy. Yeah. It was a little boy. Where are we going, Daddy? Oh, don't worry. We're going someplace. But if you understand that our sages teach us that he was a, a strapping, vital young man of 37, then you understand that that changes everything about his binding. It changes the, phys- the physical aspect of it. It changes the intellectual aspect of it. It changes the emotional aspect of it. It changes his understanding of it. And, and then we have a statement that our sages make that Isaac said to Avraham, tie me down tight. Right. Bind right. me tight that I should not, God forbid, involuntarily, mm-hmm. you know, kick or something and the knife will move and I'll render myself uh, an invalid uh, offering. He was on board so, with it. Exactly. How Knowing fully. his participation changes everything for us as well, because we're we're so used to putting the spotlight of the of the whole uh, cosmic conundrum of the of the akidah on, on what it must have been like for Avraham, and we rarely do we talk about what it must have been like for Yitzchak. But he was uh, he was fully cognizant of 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 the situation. So 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 uh, you know, t- talking about different ways of serving Hashem, the idea of Avraham's perception being chesed, and of course Yitzchak's perception being gvura. Yitzhak is identified with the uh, the concept of the more severe um, constricted consciousness of judgment 
because and, and and we can see that as the object of the akidah that you know his his whole world is looking at things differently avraham's way of serving hashem which is what we're up to right now is through kindness and there is an expression in our sages writings in the midrash in the talmud there's a very very important expression to understand that the avot ha'avot hen hen hamerkava that the forefathers are themselves the chariot what does that mean? That the, the forefathers are the chariot. It means that they are like the vessel upon which Hashem's presence rests in this world. And that's the idea of their actually being, as it were, kind of like the personification of the Midot. Again, because Hashem manifests himself through, through his relationship with, with creation. And all of, it's about perception. Each one of them also had to... Um, come to their own conclusion about who Hashem is, and they related to Hashem. Every per, every person relates to Hashem differently, and no one can ever tell another person who God is. I think this is this is something that is so deep. You know, people try to tell other people who God is, and we can try that. It's something we can try to explain from our own experience. We can also teach from a text and we can pass down a tradition and we can plug ourselves into the holiest sources in the world. But I don't know if you can really tell another person who God is, you know why? Because it's totally experiential. Mm -hmm. And that's why, for example, I always say this, that in, in our daily prayers, in the Shmona Asrei, right? In the 18 blessing prayers every day, when we begin, we say, blessed are you Hashem, our God, right? And we say, our God and the God of our fathers, this is the daily prayer. We say, our God and the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And the question is always, if we say, you know how economical we always have to be with words. If we're saying, okay, you're the God of, you're our God and the God of our fathers, then why do I have to enumerate each one? Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Because the just reason for that, yeah. exactly, is because the God of, of Yitzhak, as it were, isn't really the, the God of Abraham, meaning he didn't get it from him. And certainly Abraham didn't get it from his father. We, we give our children what we have. Of course, we give them what we have. We give them everything that we have. But each child also, each person needs to find Hashem on, on their own as well. It's They can't, Abraham was not able to just rely on what his father Terach taught him, that's for sure. But even Yitzchak could not relate to, to Hashem as Abraham understood him and so right. on and Yaakov. So the idea is that it's it, Hashem is, is um, someone that we need to know on our own. So, so why am I saying all this? Because the unbelievable thing is that Abraham's entire, uh, it, because it starts with Abraham and Abraham is really the one that we need to understand because certainly at this point, because it's Parshat Vayera, right? Beginning in, in Genesis 18. But the idea is, listen, again, the world totally far gone in idolatry, lost. Avraham, the first person, like we said last week, who came along in so many years. And finally Hashem is, is oh, wow, someone actually is there. There's like, there's like a, a live person that's looking for me that wants to have a relationship. This is refreshing. You know, where did you come from, young man? So Hashem is like really excited, as it were, that and Avraham is discovering him. And 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 it's it's just amazing that he is 
again, as we said last week, rising to the occasion and willing to take responsibility to be the guarantor of humanity, to teach the legacy of Hashem to the world, to bring the light of one God into the world. And this was his career and he traveled and he, and he spoke and he, and he educated and he risked his life and he became the number one influencer of his time that there's only one God. But the way that he did it is what's important for us to understand. That's the amazing thing. And when, when I talk about a personal kinyan, a personal acquisition, as it were, of, of Hashem for, that each person has to make in a personal relationship and how they relate to it in that particular midah and his different ways of serving Hashem, Avraham's way of viewing Hashem was through the lens of kindness. To, to Avraham, everything was about Hashem's kindness and therefore his life was a was a work in kindness. The main way that Avraham taught others to serve Hashem was not by lecturing them, was not by teaching them. It was by the way he acted. Sure. And he acted in a in a way that we learn about in the beginning of this parsha by bestowing kindness upon everyone that he possibly could. And that is so amazing because the Torah, first of all, is, is a covenantal experience. It's, it's about a covenant. It's about action. It's based on action. It's not a philosophy. It's not a, it's not a theology. It's about, it's about doing something, right? It's not, yes, you are responsible for every thought even, and, and you're responsible for every word, but you're responsible for every deed. And every deed is about doing something in this world to make it a better place, to uh, to change it, to do tikkun, right? The amazing thing is, you know, we, we, we keep talking about world history. We keep talking about history repeating itself. We keep talking about the template of history. Now, what did we perceive until Abraham's time? That the earlier generations kept on returning to idolatry, right? Um, what is the verse? Like a dog to its own vomit? The earlier generations kept on returning to idolatry, uh, even after the flood. And, and there's just, just this tremendous uh, um, social and moral breakdown that we kept witnessing. So if you look at it that way, that history does repeat itself and that humanity does have this predisposition, what's, what's our Achilles heel in our time? If we see that this, that this is something that Abraham was always fighting and, and it kept on reoccurring, you know what? We, we, you and I have always boldly, I think, boldly defined idolatry as basically when you really think about it, when you really, really, really want to be honest about it, it's serving oneself. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a selfie, Jim. Yeah. It's a selfie <laughs> because, because, and, th and this is why, this is why the sages say that a person who gets angry is like, is like is like um, they're serving an idol. Yeah. It's like is like they're serving an idol, and a person who breaks something in their anger is like they're bringing an offering to an idol. Mm -hmm. And when you when that is so deep, this is a, a teaching of our sages because what it because who is it? Who is the idol that you're serving? Yourself. yourself. Yeah. It's self indulgence. It's self indulgence, right? So look at look at our world today, Jim. Our world is. I can't read the news. I can't bear the horrific, horrific news every day. Everything is 
posted on social media. <laughs> Everything is about me, how I feel, how, what I'm doing today. The whole world must want to know what I'm having for breakfast. <laughs> and when that dolphin walked into the room, you could have heard a pin drop. And then everyone said, and everything is devoid of a real relationship. It's all about me. It's about instant gratification. It's about objectification, which is why people are basically eating them, eating each other alive. It's all horrible. And it's also it's all a type of idolatry. And Torah, Judaism, if you will, Avraham's Torah is all about reaching out to others, making others happy, comfortable, attending to their needs. You know that there's actually a mitzvah. It's, a, it's actually something that is a positive commandment that we do first thing in the morning, Jim, as part of the, pre, the preliminaries of the morning service, which is so mind-bending that, you know, a, a Jew gets up in the morning and the, preferably he prays to Hashem with the sunrise. That's the most the most um, praiseworthy time for the morning service is at the very moment astronomically that the sun is rising to begin the, the morning prayer at that moment, right? And so first there's pre preliminaries, there are, there are earlier prayers and blessings that we make while it's still dark, we get up early, right? But do you know that the first thing in the day before we begin the morning prayers, a person's supposed to say, I, I, I behold, I accept upon myself the commandment to love my neighbor as myself. Yeah. And yeah. before you actually pray to Hashem, you're supposed to, with your mouth fully articulating the word, say out loud, I accept upon myself that I am obligated to love my neighbor as myself, right? Yeah. That's the first thing that we do in the morning. Do you know the last thing that we do at night? The last thing that we do at night, a person is sitting on their bed and they're saying their prayers before the nighttime Shema. And there's a paragraph that we say in the nighttime prayers. And the first thing that we say before we go to sleep is, Master of the universe, I forgive every single person who sinned against me, even inadvertently, no matter what. And, and I don't want, God forbid, please, that any person should be punished on my account because I completely forgive everyone. And so that's like a, then the day is a sandwich between mm -hmm. those two incredibly profound expressions of, of selflessness, of connection to society, of my place in society. And this is all Avraham. This is all Avraham. This is, this is all the way he related uh, to Hashem. What you're saying neatly positions Avraham's place in history. The tower had fallen, a tower that was built for the express purpose of let us make a name for ourselves. Jim, may I just be totally blunt here? That tower was Facebook headquarters. Okay. <laughs> Amen. That tower was Facebook headquarters. That's where all the servers were. So <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. And even that's a pun, if you will, uh, of the word server. But it's unbelievable. It's it's so divinely inspired. We open up the Parsha, right? We open up the Parsha, and, and, and I I'm sorry, but I never tire of of this lesson, and I I, I have probably gone over it 25 times for the past 25 years, but it's, it is the most profound lesson in the Torah. Amen. Sorry, not the most, but one of them. It is the Parsha opens that Hashem appeared to Avraham in the plains of Mamre, right? Genesis 18, one. 
And he's sitting in the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. And then again, like you and I were talking, there is the, the, the teachings of our sages, if you want to call it midrash, however we want to relate to the background, the backstory, the in-between the lines of our sages, which is the, the in integral, um, inseparable, irrevocable uh, part of the Torah that was given over in every generation to be taught from teacher to student orally. What's going on here? What's the backstory? The backstory is that Avraham just circumcised himself mm -hmm. at the age of 100. Yeah. At the age of 99. Mm -hmm. He is in a lot of pain because it's the third day. The third day is the most painful day. And Avraham has a, an issue. The issue that he has is that he is totally obsessed with the commandment of welcoming guests into his home. And that's why the sages teach that he lived in a tent which was open from all four sides at yeah. a crossroads so that he could see in all four directions because if anybody was ever coming in the road, person who is traveling, has no convenience, has nothing to drink, has no food, is weary, he would bring them in, he would refresh them and he would teach them about Hashem. And this is how he taught everybody about Hashem because they were all his house guests. So he's, he, this is what he lives for. This is what he lives for. And the unbelievable thing is that Benjamin Franklin, who is one of the American patriarchs, said that house guests are like fish. After three they days. stink after three <laughs> days. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not here to say anything bad about Benjamin Franklin. I mean, I, there's other things to say that you can look up, but that's not my point. Okay, discover electricity, whatever. But the point is, the point is, that is like so anti-Torah. Mm -hmm. That is like so anti-Torah to say that they, they, they stink after three days. Avraham's whole life was about welcoming guests into his house because the sages learn, in fact, this statement that they make. They understand from what we're about to learn together now that having guests in your home is greater than having the Shekhinah itself. Wow. Having guests is greater than receiving the Shekhinah, the divine presence. Why? So this is what's going on. So he's sitting there, right? And he is, he just is recovering from his operation that he did himself, right? And he is not feeling that great because there's a lot of pain on the third day. And so Hashem made it extraordinarily hot that day. He actually changed nature. He actually made a supernature, right? And that's why in Hebrew, of course, we learn, we lose so much if we're not staying in Hebrew. The Hebrew says that he was sitting in the entrance of his tent. We know why he was sitting in the entrance to look out for passersby, but he was sitting there, hayom, not in the heat of the day, but like the heat of the day in Hebrew. Why? That's a giveaway. It's a flag because it was not a natural heat. It was like the heat of the day, but it was a, it was a, um, uh, fabricated heat that Hashem made especially so that there wouldn't be anybody outside because it would be too hot for anybody to be outside so as not to cause his friend inconvenience. But what happened here, and so what, ha what happened is that it says Hashem appeared to him. And then it doesn't say another word about that, Shem. We don't know what they were saying. And, and the sages teach that Hashem appeared to him because Hashem also keeps the commandments, as it were. And there's a commandment to visit the sick. So Hashem appeared to him because he wants to do the commandment of Bikur Cholim. He wants to visit Avraham while he's convalescing. But what happened was that Hashem sees 
that even though he went out of his way, bent over backwards to change the very fabric of nature by making it extra hot so that nobody would be outside so that his friend wouldn't be inconvenienced, Avraham was very upset that there wasn't anybody around. And he was more pained by the fact that he could not bestow goodness upon a passerby than he was about his physical pain. And therefore Hashem had to do something, another, another, the same day he had to change nature again. Avram's really making trouble. And he had to send these three angels disguised as wayfarers so that Avraham would have somebody to bestow goodness upon. So, but the but the deepest of the deepest lesson in the world is that is that the verse opens with something here that is very, very elusive. If you if you don't understand what you're reading, that Hashem appeared to him in in this place, in the plains of Mamre, while he's sitting at the entrance. But then Abraham lifts up his eyes and he sees these three men who he perceives to be three men and he runs to greet them. And we never hear another word about the fact that Hashem was there. Yeah. It's, like a, it's like he was like a dangling telephone by a cord. If you remember telephones that used to have this cord that used to get twisty when you drop it, right? He drops the phone. And we always date ourselves, right? That we actually know what a phone is. Right. <laughs> he drops it. And then like he he's out, he's out of there. He's out of there. Because, okay, I'm, this is wonderful that you're visiting me, but I see three people there. And I have to, I have to take care of them. And so he goes and personally wants to take care of them. But that I I want to synthesize and distill this whole thing into one sentence, which is to me the most profound, profound, profound expression of what true Torah is all about. That basically what Abraham was saying to Hashem was, because again, Hashem was visiting him and then he leaves him in the lurch. Hashem appeared to Avram. We don't hear another word about that. Oh, I, wait, I see three men. Bye. He says, I don't have time to, be, to talk to you. I don't have time to visit with you because I have to be like you. Uh, I have to be like, I don't have time to talk to you. I have to be like you. In Latin, it's called imitio dei, right? The principle of imitating Hashem. This is the whole Torah on one foot is that, is that, and, and this means so much because if you look around at other, I'm doing air quotes here, religions, disciplines, paths to spirituality, again, it, there's contemplation, there's meditation that has its place. Everything has its place, but the greatest imitation, the greatest, excuse me, the greatest religious experience that there is in this world is to act in a godly manner. Mm-hmm. And, and, and when we reflect Hashem's midot in the world, and this is the whole concept, we keep saying Abraham is chesed, Abraham is chesed. What does that mean? That Abraham is a reflection of the attribute of kindness. It means that he, he related to Hashem through kindness, through bringing kind, kindness to others. And then, and then the, the biggest thing of all, and with this I'll conclude this because I'm monopolizing Jim, the biggest thing of all here is that uh, he he goes running after these these cows, right, to have a meal prepared for his guests. And according to the midrash, one of these cows runs, and Avraham is running after it, and he and he runs to catch it, and the cow ran into a cave. 
and the Avraham's running after the cow to catch it. And by so doing, he stumbled upon what became the cave of the patriarchs. The cow ran into a cave. Avraham goes into this cave. It turns out it is the resting place of Adam and Eve. Yeah, right. It is, it is what is now the tomb of the patriarchs in Hebron. And the Zohar says, talk about holy midrashim, right? Holy teachings of the sages. The Zohar says that Avraham stumbled into this cave and perceived beyond any doubt that this is the entrance to Gan Eden and that this is Adam and Chava. <clears throat> and from the moment that he came into this place, he had a tremendous yearning to be buried there himself. Right. He wanted to be in that place. And the way I understand that, that deep, deep, deep lesson is that Avraham, that was his place. He deserved to be in that place. He was brought to that place. You know why? Because again, Avraham is the guarantor of Adam. Avraham is, is basically the one who is taking responsibility for the legacy of Adam himself. So that's his, his place as well. But again, just to, to capsulize everything, because I think that these lessons are astoundingly simple. But what this all boils down to is that Avraham found the entrance to the Garden of Eden because he was chasing a calf because he wanted it to be slaughtered, to be made into a meal. So you know how people say the road to hell is paved with good intentions? What, what happened here is that we have, we have seen that the entrance to paradise is, was discovered through a simple act of kindness. Yeah. That is literally, I, th I think this is exactly what our sages are teaching us. I think that in the teachings of our sages, again, I say it's a poetic vehicle and not necessarily literal. I think this is the deepest lesson in the world. And I think our sages are telling us that the entrance to paradise literally is simple acts of kindness. And that's why we say the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, whereas Avraham is one who actually... That we're never actualized. That we're, we're never, never actualized. We're never actualized, exactly. Right. It's like we often say on the show, you know, uh, thinking good thoughts all day long doesn't make you a good person. Doing good good things makes you a good it's person. It's just so staggering to me. These lessons are so incredible to me that... Again, there's so much just in this in the first couple of verses of this Torah portion that Hashem Himself appeared to Avraham, but that wasn't good enough for him. That wasn't that wasn't enough of a religious experience for him. He had to leave God off like and drop him like a hot potato, because he sees three men who, frankly, he thought were Arabs. Right? I got to yeah. tell you, and I I always say like if three men dressed like that came to my door, I don't know if I would open it so quickly, and I certainly wouldn't prepare a steak sandwich for them. Right? Yeah. But the point, the point is this was Avraham's religious, true religious experience was to share what he understood about Hashem with other people. And again, this is so the opposite of our world today that is so absolutely self-absorbed and self-obsessed with instant gratification. And, it, and it's like, it's crumbling. It's crumbling. Everything about society is is, is <coughs> getting choked up here. Just a second. I'm getting Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I can edit that. Everything about our society is either manipulating others or being manipulated or trying to protect ourselves from being manipulated. It's so, it's like this foreboding feeling of 
we just need to survive because we're pitted against such such forces. And again, real relationships, real human bonding and touching others' lives and doing for someone else, it's, it's so far. But Torah is all about what you do. It's all about what you do. And, and Abraham is, is, the, is the very, very personification of that. And, and it, the, the unbelievable thing is that in this very parasha, we have this whole thing of, um, of Sodom that Hashem first of all shares it with Abraham. And again, and, and he says this unbelievable thing before he, he destroys Sodom. He says, uh, that he says, shall I conceal from Abraham what I do now that Abraham is surely to become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall bless themselves by him. For I have loved him because he commands his children and his household after him that they keep the way of Hashem doing charity and justice Amen. in order that Hashem might bring, might then bring upon Abraham that which he had spoken of him. And then he begins to talk about the outcry of, of uh, Sodom and Amorah. And the thing is, here we have this benchmark, which is a, 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 admittedly a very high standard to hold up, and that is Avraham, right? And Avraham is going to intercede for Sodom. The, the man is so totally a, a man of chesed, of kindness, a true man of kindness, that he, he intercedes for Sodom as well. But the more that we study what our sages teach us about that society of Sodom, the more we are so totally chilled because it wasn't just decadent. It wasn't just evil. It was like such a polar opposite of Avraham. Mm -hmm. And so like we have these, I mean, I mean, we learned already a lot. Of, we've discussed in the past few weeks a lot about the evil nature of the generation of the flood and the generation of the tower and the things that they would do and the organ and the Hamas, you know, in Parshat Noach about the violent robbery and and the and the society, you know, that worked together to to defraud and to rob and that kind of thing. And then, and then we learn in the writings of our sages about Sodom. And so there, there's a very, very famous um, example that's given. It's Everybody knows it, right? It's very, very famous. And it's called the bed of Sodom, right? What is it? That they were like not, they did not like house guests, okay? That, and, and, and it's like very, very famous. They did not like house guests and... Um, they were not welcoming, but it was more than that. So, so a person would be looking for a place to, to stay, right? So they had one bed, one size. This is something that our sages have been teaching us for thousands of years, but let's see what it really means. They had one bed. And if a person was too short to fit into this bed, they would stretch him. Right. And if a person was too tall, they would chop off his legs, okay? Yeah. What is that? What is that? Again, if I, if I believe in the holiness of, of the sages teaching that it comes from Sinai, right? And, and I know that it is a metaphor and it is not necessarily literal and it might very well be as well because it can be. But I believe that what I'm getting from this, what our sages are teaching us is that this is like some sort of societal sadism, which is basically just for entertainment. It's like, wh why? Why would they do that? Why would they do that? It's like, a big joke for uh, at, the, at other people's expense. It's like, it's like the total, 
it's worse than the objectification that we have in our society today. It's what happens when we objectify people. It is basically like just everyone becomes like a plaything. Right. They've and, completely and, and, de dehumanized people. Right. Right. Yeah. Because they dehumanize themselves. So, th so then, so then it's, it's like back to back, you know, that society with what Avraham was trying to do in the world, right. the tikkun olam that he was trying to make. It's just so amazing. Even the verse that says this outcry, the sages open up that, that idea of, you know, what was the outcry? The people of Sodom and Gomorrah had, had actually gotten to the point of legislating cruelty. If someone was caught committing acts of kindness, they could be put to death. And this outcry, the sages tell us that it actually points to uh, a daughter of Lot. She was called Paltit, and she had seen a man who uh, spent the night in Sodom, and they would lavish gifts on him and, and mock him, but they wouldn't feed him anything. They kept him there for something like two or three days, and this daughter of Lot went out and she fed him because the poor guy was hungry and thirsty, and the leaders of the city saw her uh, you know, committing an act of charity took her up to a, a, a hill, staked her to the hill, and uh, basically poured honey on her. Uh, either the ants or the bees came after bees. her, and, and they killed her. And, Slowly. And, and this is when the, uh, the Midrash says an angel approached the throne of, of, of glory and said, have you seen what these people are doing to the innocent who are committing acts of kindness? In popular culture, even if you mention Sodom and Gomorrah, people always think of uh, rampant sexuality. Even though they were guilty of that, their real sin was, was their legislative cruelty. They actually had made it lawful to be cruel. Okay, but Jim, again, just like we talk about the template and history repeating itself, and what, what does it come down to in our generation? I'm sorry, but when I see and hear stories in social media about people filming other people being attacked, right? And instead of coming to their aid, they're, they're, they've got the whole thing on, they're uploading it, right? That reminds me of this incident that you just told me about Lode's daughter. I'm sure somebody mm -hmm. was there filming the whole thing. Yeah. Like, you know what I'm saying? This is what people are becoming because they're becoming so insensitive to the cry of another person Well, that everything is just, what can I, what, how can I get something out of this? And like, I better our, upload this. Rabbi, our own news media mocking people who uh, reject the, the vaccination and become sick and die. So it's, anybody who takes any stand against the narrative of many, many different narratives, but if they're all the same narrative, whoever takes a stand is mocked. Yeah, exactly. that's that. That's what's done today. That's that's what uh, journalism has become. Mm -hmm. That's what a, um, official um Official statements from governments have become also where where huge segments of societies are being basically marginalized and then ultimately demonized. Right. You know, you know that, the, you know, Lot's wife. Right. So here in this in this partial, we also have the very, very inexplicable or it's not inexplicable, it's inscrutable. The incident of Lot's wife and Lot's daughters and um, the birth of Moab mm -hmm. and Amon, right? So, so uh, you know, 
she turned to a pillar of salt. Right. She turned around. She told not to turn around, and she turned to a pillar of salt. And and one of the ideas expressed is that she complained when Lot wanted uh, some salt for his guests. Yeah. He, he had guests and he wanted to give them salt. And she said, oh, even this bad trait you're also bringing into our house, that you want to offer our guests salt? Saddam and Gomorrah have been in the news again lately. There was a, a very detailed report released by a group who've been studying a site in the Jordan Valley for several years now. The city shows remnants of destruction uh, around a period between 1750 to 1650 BCE. And this, by the way, is on the northeastern end of the Dead Sea, not the southern end of the Dead Sea. But that's actually not what uh, a lot of people think. People think that, that Sodom and Gomorrah were on the south end because that's where all the salt is today. But if you go back to the Torah and you read the story of, of Lot and Avraham having, uh, having a disagreement, Actually, they weren't having the disagreement. It was their shepherds. So Avraham said, "You know, maybe we should maybe we should separate." Right before that, he tells us in uh, chapter twelve of Bereshit of Genesis that Avraham pitched his tent between Beit El and Ai, and Beit El and I would put, put would put Avraham at the northwest end of the Dead Sea. And it says that he and Lot, right after that, he and Lot looked down and saw the cities of the plain and said it was well watered. So right away, Lot is looking down at at the uh, what we now call the Dead Sea region, the Jordan Valley. He's Jordan looking, Valley, exactly. He's, he's standing at the northwest end of it looking down. They had read a commentary uh, written by my teacher of blessed memory, Vendel Jones, who pointed all this out using the Torah to show that that the story of Saddam Gomorrah most likely happened at the northern end of the Dead Sea. And they actually contacted Mendel and said, you know, we were inspired by your, your uh, commentary on this. And so they began digging at this site called Tel El Haman. They just released a scientific report I read. It said that all the soil evidence at the ruins of this site show that a an event very much like the Tunguska event. Back in 1908, there was an airburst, a meteorite exploded in midair above the Tunguska forest and um, created a crater and then flattened trees for miles around. And they compared it to a nuclear blast in the air. And so what this report details is that something just like that occurred. The soil shows micro beads. Some of the soil was fused. And then also this enormous amount of salt in the soil, which is amazing. I think that the report is worth reading. I think they have, uh, it, it has some merit for this story because it shows that something like, something very much like, explained in scientific terms, something very much like the, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah the, the raining of, of fire and brimstone from the sky did occur. And what's mm -hmm. amazing is they date it between 1750 to 1650 BCE. And if you look at the Jewish chronology, Seder HaLam, it dates the destruction of Sodom at 2048 on, from Adam in, in the, on the Jewish chronology. That translates to 1714 BCE. Now, here's, wow. here's the thing that here's where I digress a little bit. I don't think 
they're digging in biblical Sodom, because everything that the sages tell us about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other three and four cities, they said that the the land was overturned. It, it flipped over. So what I'm going to suggest is, is that what they're digging at, this site called Tel El Hamam, could be Zohar. When the angels are taking uh, Lot by hand, they said, flee to the mountains. And he says, can you take, have mercy on me? I'm, I'm an old guy. I'm not going to be able to make it up into the mountains before the destruction arrives. Can I go to this, can I go to this city called Zohar? Now, what's interesting, Rabbi, is that there is a source that tells us that God actually did not destroy the physical city of Zohar. There is a source called Kli uh, Chemda, and it says that the inhabitants of, Zo of Zohar died, but God preserved the city. We also have the crater at, at the southern end of the Dead Sea, the famous right. uh, Mispah Ramon. So we have a lot of evidence for destruction mm -hmm. of, of the type that is told to us here in, in this Torah Parsha. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's absolutely riveting, Jim. There's so much going on in our Parsha, the birth of Yitzchak, and of course the Akidah, and, and uh, the banishment of, of Hagar. I just want to mention one other thing, because I think we're about out of time soon. Uh, and that is the, the uh, whole mystery of um of load and his daughters <clears throat> which basically is um the prehistory of the emergence of the soul of king david yeah and mashiach into the world which is so so unseemly looking and so and so strange and so you know absolutely um what should i say uh, here we we have this event which is against all um, propriety, all everything that we would be expecting. You know, anyone who would be looking there would not anticipate that anything holy could come out of such a thing at all. It was absolutely whatever whatever their intentions were, whether they were good intentions or not. It is it is this terrible aberration, right? And um, of course, Lot's wife. If she would have been there, it never would have happened, which basically means, if you think about it for a moment, that if Lot's wife would have been in the world, there would be no Mashiach. Right. So she had to be removed. So why not just get rid of her for the slightest infraction, like turning around? So if you don't think that the that the punishment was commensurate to the crime, well, because it wasn't, but it wasn't, but we needed to get her out of there. So she's out. And then this crazy, crazy thing happens. And then we have a descendant of Moab named Ruth, mm -hmm. Ruth, who is the grandmother of King David, um, from whom Mashiach is born. So it is a, a, the deepest of the deep in the world, and it is it is um, an idea of um, something being so totally challenged so totally holy so totally pivotal for humanity's redemption that it's, it's almost like it had to be brought in through a side door you know it had to be brought in in a very very um kind of um, concealed way to avoid um, confrontation to avoid um, accusation 
And um, it's quite, it's quite um, remarkable. And the truth is that when you start to study this particular subject, the lineage of the soul of Mashiach coming into the world, you find that the, every step of the way was accompanied by these kind of very, very strange um, circumstances. Um, circumstances that could would raise one's eyebrows even more than that, that one would say, is that even possible? Is that, is that can anything redeeming be about that? For example, um, first of all, from the very, very beginning, we learn that Adam himself, Adam, gave a gift of King David 70 years of his life. That's why right. Adam lived to be only 930 years old when he had been chopped down to a thousand, because Hashem told him that there's not gonna, he doesn't have any time for this person he was thinking about named David. And Adam was so upset. So he gave him a gift of 70 years. But then we have this, this incident, and then we have Yehuda and Tamar and David and Bathsheba. And there are other, there are other stages along the way also that are less familiar to people. But the idea being that there is, there is something going on here, which is um, Hashem well, himself was keeping below the radar. Yeah. Hashem Rabbi, himself was keeping it below the radar. Yeah. I was going to say, isn't, isn't this the way that Hashem, it's, it's a way to hide the, the, the righteous from the, from the, from the rest of the world and its evil As influence so that the, that the evil would not go out and seek out these these people who all represent a salvation for mankind and for humanity, right. that God protects right. them in these very, it's like hiding in plain sight, if you will. Exactly. Someone thinking that can't be it. That can't be it. There can't be yeah. anything important coming from that. Yeah. When they came, when they came looking for David. When Samuel came to anoint, Hashem told him to go to Jesse. Right. Yes. So Thank he brings you. out all the kids. Except. Samuel kept saying, that's not him. That's right. not him. And then finally he says, don't you have any other kids? Right. This is their Oh, there's one that's like out with the sheep, but he's like yeah. black sheep of the family, right? Exactly. And they because they thought because his father thought that David was the result of his wife being unfaithful to him. The world today will look at, at the, the Jewish people and even the nation of Israel, and they'll say they they can't possibly be the, the salvation of this planet. See, Jim, I think I, I think I've already read that on Facebook. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think yeah. they've already said that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. I, I think I think Ben and Jerry's even said that. Anyway, yeah. I digress. One bless all, all of our listeners that they should always look for opportunities for kindness and emulating Avraham, and that we should get back to that basic basic tenant of our of our. Um, um, defining our religious experience by acting like Hashem in this world and doing it for others. Amen. Amen.